Well, let's uh, grab a seat and we'll get our Bibles and notebooks ready and dive into the Word. Who's ready to do that this morning? Who wants to dive into the Word? We love the Word of God, don't we? Why don't we open to Isaiah, and we're going to be in chapter 65. Okay, honest raise of hands here. When I said a year ago that we were going to get through the whole book of Isaiah, how many of you doubted me? Go ahead, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. It is 57 weeks, so you're both right and wrong. Okay? We got through it in 57 weeks, and the reason I wanted to do that is because reading Isaiah in context is so very, very important. Hopefully throughout our journey, you've picked up pieces here and there and nuggets that you can take back and continue your study. Please don't ever, uh, when we finish a book, don't ever think, well, I'm done studying that now, so I can move on to the next book. Go back and reread it, and things that we have studied will become very apparent to you, and the Spirit will speak to you. It is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, important books in the Old Testament to form our understanding of the New Testament and the, the, the Christ that we serve. Aside from Psalms, it is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And this morning, as we close it out, we're going to again reflect back on many of the themes that we have seen throughout the book. But as I'm learning after six years of pastoring and 15 years in ministry, I'm learning that repeating things over and over again is pretty much what we're supposed to do anyway. And it's not as though we get frustrated with Isaiah for repeating these same things because we need to understand it so much. And so today, as we look at the last things of Isaiah, the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see that he's putting forward this, a vision of the last things. A vision of the last things. We as humans are so concerned with what the last things will be, but the great thing about Jesus is that the last things are not the end, they're actually the beginning. And what we experience here in the pain and hurt and brokenness of this world will cease to exist at one point. And a new beginning will start of the fullness of shalom and wholeness in the world and peace. And I look forward to that day. And hopefully today as we go through this, we're both convicted to make sure that we are part of that future. As well as the fact that we're encouraged as to what Jesus is planning. But let's start and refresh in conclusion here of the book a few of the main themes that we've been studying for the last year. We studied this in Isaiah 33, 22. It captures who God is in such a great way. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Everybody say it with me. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So what is this saying? He's judge, lawgiver, king, and savior. And we need to balance our understanding of those four pieces. If we don't, if we raise any one of them, it's diminishing the others and it causes a mischaracterization of God. We have to hold it in balance. Just as a good dad is both kind of the king of the home, the lawgiver of the home, and the kind, caring, loving father to his children, a home that has that in good, loving authority, not abusive authority, holds things from being in chaos. And God is the same way. Secondly, we understand, uh, we've, we've understood from, from Isaiah a few things that are themes that go throughout the book. The first one, and possibly the most important thing that we learn from Isaiah is this. The Lord is, Yahweh is, the God of covenant relationship. He's the God of covenant relationship. You can remember all the way back a year ago, I'm sure it's right at the tip of your tongues and the tip of your brains, right? I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, but... 
For some reason, I remember my teachings. That's weird, isn't it? I'm just that OCD. If we remember all the way back a year ago, we played a video from the, uh, the Bible Project about covenants. You can go back and find it. Uh, it's the theme of covenants. I would watch it again and again and again if I were you, and you'll understand that the Bible is centered around covenant because our God is a God of covenant relationship. The second thing that we saw is that he is the God who frees the oppressed. He's the God who frees the oppressed. So much of fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist Christianity is oppressive and wanting to keep people in abuse and oppression. And so what we've seen throughout Isaiah is that God is not for that. God is for freeing the oppressed, the ideas of justice and righteousness. Third, we saw that he's the God of reconciliation. He's not a God of division. He's not a God of separation. He's a God of reconciliation. It's what this whole story in this book is about, is being reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. That's what the day of shalom will be. The day of peace will be in the end of days. It will be where we are all fully reconciled to God and fully reconciled to one another. We also saw that he's a God of restoration, that he's not just going to get rid of us because we're a pain and start over. He's going to restore things. And then lastly, he's a king who governs his people by his sovereign law of love. Because of a hyper view of grace, a wrong mischaracterization of grace, a lot of Christians have been taught and heard that there is no law anymore. I'm sorry, the New Testament says sin is lawlessness. So if there is no law, then Jesus is the God of lawlessness and sin. There is still a law for us to follow. It's not the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, where we sacrifice animals and can't wear clothes of two different kinds, but we follow the greater law of love, the greater law of righteousness and justice. We've studied that over and over and over again. And as we bring the book of Isaiah to a close, these themes should be rattling around in our minds and our hearts and coming back to us over and over again. Because to understand that God is this way, what does that say about us? Who should we be? A reflection of this God. We don't just sit and take the goodies from God and get into heaven when we die. That is not what we're supposed to be. We're image bearers. And by giving us His Holy Spirit, we are to reflect these things. And that's it for today. I'll see you later. If we walked away with that, that would be heavy enough, wouldn't it? Am I a person of covenant relationship? Or do I bolt at the first sign of commitment? Am I a person who works to free the oppressed? Or am I so concerned about my own kingdom that I don't really care? Am I a person of reconciliation? Or when somebody wrongs me, do I go the opposite direction? Am I a person of restoration? Or do I just keep moving to new relationships and new groups of people to start over so that I can have a new beginning? Am I a person who lives within the sovereign law of God's love, or have I taken a hyper-grace stance that says, well, God just loves me no matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I sin. If we just took this, guys, this would be enough to chew on for the rest of our lives, would it not? Can I get an amen? Amen. But you know me. I'm not going to leave it there. The larger context of this book if you can remember all the way back to Isaiah 1, is that in the midst of the greater people of Israel, who all claimed to be people of God, there were actually two groups of people. 
Isaiah chapter 1, it says, you guys bring me your sacrifices and you tithe and you do all this religious stuff and you're all about the feasts and the festivals, but you actually don't fulfill my heart. You don't follow out my heart and reflect it to the world. So learn to do good. Learn righteousness and justice, he says. There were two groups, groups of people. There was the group of people that used the religion of Yahweh in order to manipulate him for their own prosperity. And there was the group of people that were the remnant that was small but humble, trying to walk in covenant, committed relationship with Yahweh and obediently follow him even though they made mistakes. And in our text today, we're going to see the same differentiation, except that here, as we see the last things, God isn't allowing them to stay together. He's finally separating them. Because as we saw last week, if you are not in that relationship with Yahweh, you are an enemy of Yahweh, and peace cannot come to the world until the enemies of Yahweh are dealt with. And those enemies aren't out there. Very often, as Jesus said, they're right here within the group of people that say we all are in relationship to God. And so this might be very convicting for some of us today. There are two verses one in each chapter of 65 and 66, that speak to how he differentiates between the two of them. Look at 65.12 with me. We'll come back to uh, start a little bit earlier, but look at 65.12 and also 66.4. They end the same way, 65.12 and 66.4. 65.12 says, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. In other words, he's saying, I want relationship, you didn't respond to it. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. 66.4 says very much the same thing. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Those who respond to his call and listen to his prophetic word is one group. Those that do not, but do as they desire and still claim to be in relationship with him, regardless of the word, what the word says, is the second group of people. Now this plays directly into the immediate context of the text we're looking at today because remember in chapter 62, God had metaphorically placed a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem to look out and see when the promise of salvation was going to come. And so you can imagine the guy looking... Out in the distance, the fog is kind of rolling, and he's going, where is the army that's going to bring us salvation? Where is the king that leads that army? And instead of seeing an army, he sees one person in Isaiah 63, the king in clothing that was crimson-stained because he had stomped out his wrath on his enemies as one who stomps out grapes in a wine press. And now the watchman, seeing this wrathful judgment, having been afflicted on the Gentile enemies of God, had received cause and reason to say, I better pray. I don't want to mess with this guy. I don't want to be his enemy, so I need to humble myself. So much of what we read last week was a a prayer of humility at the end of chapter 64. And he ends it by basically saying, is there still hope, God? Is there still hope to save us? Will you save us? And in response to this prayer, God in his mercy and faithfulness and promise says this. Look back at 65.1. 65.1. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. 
I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. You ever been dissed when you try to go for a hug? Happens all the time with little kids, doesn't it? My daughter, she got to a certain age and she would start to play coy. And I don't care how coy you're playing when you go, hey, daddy wants a hug, come here. And she goes, no. How's it feel? How's it feel, guys? How? Yeah. God reaches out for that kind of relationship to us. He says, I want to commit to you. Will you commit to me? Think about the heart of God and what he has to deal with in my life and yours. How often we turn the shoulder to him. And so as we step into verse 8, we need to understand this metaphor that the world has kind of distanced themselves from God. They're not seeking after him. And those who even call themselves his people, they're doing the same thing. And so this metaphor of treading down the winepress of wrath is still in use. There will be wrath. All of us deserve it. But now the subject is not the Gentile nations that are enemies of wrath or or, or recipients of wrath. It is the Israelites who are false worshipers, those who claim to be the followers of God, but are actually in their life showing that they really don't care. And you can think of Jesus referencing the wheat and the tares in the church. What did Jesus say? In the church will grow both the wheat that are fruitful and the tares that look exactly like them but have no fruit in their life. They do as they please. Those who are truly Christ's and those that are not. And so God here will use this metaphor and use the end of this book to speak of the separation between the false and true worshipers, the false and true followers. And to the followers, he's going to give true hope, but to the false worshipers, he's going to give a certain expectation of judgment. So first, here's what we see. You can write this down. Protection for the remnant that seeks God and judgment on the majority that forsakes him. Protection for the remnant that seeks God, and judgment on the majority that forsakes him. Let's take a look at Isaiah 65, 8 with this metaphor of the winepress in mind. Thus says Yahweh the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains, My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me. But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Question, who's he speaking to here? Are they people that state and would state and testify that they are God's people? Yes or no? All of them would, including the people he's going to bring into judgment. 
The juice specified in verse 8 is the first drippings of the overripe grapes. They would take the grapes that were ripe and they would toss them into the vat. And certain of them would split and juice would drip down. And there was no need for wrath to be poured out for that juice to be expressed. There was no need for stomping. The rest of the juice was not as good because this juice did not have dregs in it. It did not have pieces of the flesh of the grapes. It was pure. But the person who was making the wine knew that that was going to be the best, the most valuable, and they would remove that, and then they would jump into the wine press and begin to stomp a picture of God's wrath. And the juice would be expressed there, but it would not be as valuable, and it would not be pure because it required the foot of the vintner to step on it. Isaiah's main point here is that all of us deserve the wrath of the wine press. Any Christian, any believer who says, I'm good, the rest of you are terrible, they don't get it. Self-righteousness has no place in the heart or mind of a Christian because we all deserve wrath. But some are saved from that wrath because of the graciousness of God. This is due only to his mercy and divine offer of salvation. And those that choose to respond to him and follow him will be his offspring that inherit all of the goodness pictured by these two valleys, one that needs to be restored and one that is fertile and beautiful. And the watchman, he wants deliverance and salvation from the enemies of God. And so God responds and says, to actually give you the deliverance you need, I'm going to have to split. I'm going to have to finally separate. Those that will submit without wrath, and those that even will wrath with wrath will not submit. And that's within the people of God. See, peace and shalom comes when people who are against God are judged and removed. And verses 10 and 11 show us the distinction. Those that seek God is one group, and those that forsake him is the other. Those that seek God is one group, and those that forsake him is the other. Remember with me that in the greater context of the Bible, Israel was to be who to God? They were to be his what? His people, but not just his people, his people of covenant. As his covenant people, they were to represent him to the world around them. Remember this, we've gone over it a lot, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Interesting, Peter uses that same terminology for what group of people in the New Testament? Who is it? The church. We are to be the same people because if we obey his voice and keep his covenant, we are the people of what's it called? The new or the old covenant? the new covenant, we are to be a people that's a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. But let's define some terms here. We got a great question to our anonymous text line last week. Somebody texted in and said, Hans, what do you mean when you say covenant? Nobody knows what you mean. But here's the reality is if you don't know what I mean, we got a lot of work to do because I've been talking about it the entire time in Isaiah. Go back and re-listen and re-watch the covenant video in the Bible Project. But let me just give you a quick definition here. This is what it means to covenant. To covenant is to enter into an agreement that brings about mutual relational commitment. 
That's why marriage is called a covenant. That's why Jonathan and David were covenant brothers and friends. That's why the people of Israel were a covenant people. That's why the church is to be a new covenant people. Okay? Now, this is different than a contract. You guys all sign contracts for pretty much anything, right? Yeah, you get a rental car, you sign a contract. I'm good. You get a house, you sign a contract. You lease a house, you get to sign a contract. Uh, you do an adoption, you sign a thick contract, right? We're signing contracts left and right in America. And a contract is, if you, if you do your part that I have negotiated with you, then I will do mine. It's a tit-for-tat situation. It's the way of the world, the way of consumerism. A covenant is different. A covenant is different in that two parties commit first and then obligate each other afterwards. Any obligations that come, come because of the commitment. So in studying, uh, a great example is this. So my wife uh, is turning into quite the theologian, and she, in studying the book of Jeremiah for one of her seminary projects, sent me this quote from E.A. Martins in his commentary on Jeremiah. Covenant was a matter of divine initiative, not mutual negotiation. In covenant, loyalty to a person was the critical factor. In a contract, performance of set stipulations was central. Failure in a covenant relationship was not a failure of stipulations, but a failure in interpersonal relationships. See the difference? In a contract, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm out. And I'm out quick. In a covenant, you commit, and then you say, here's what we agree to committing to, and if those are broken, we stay in our covenant commitment to help each other keep up our ends of the bargains. That's what a covenant is. That's why marriage should be a covenant. But in America, have we made it more like a contract or a covenant? Yeah. Do we treat one another in the church more contractually or covenantally? Contractually. You see, that is what Christ calls us to be, mutually committed and helping one another to fulfill the obligations. The two parties work together within the covenant commitment to find a way to meet them and restore faithfulness and trust. For the Israelites, in breaking covenant faithfulness, they were not simply being disobedient. First and foremost, they were telling God they wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted no committed relationship. And that is what verse 11 means. They were not willing to commit to Yahweh because that would not allow them to seek after fortune and destiny. Fortune and destiny were gods of the surrounding pagans that we're all about prosperity. If you did what those gods wanted, you would be rich and famous and successful and comfortable and life would be easy. In this lack of commitment, the Israelites were the ones that Isaiah says were forsaking the Lord. You see, to forsake, guys, here's the definition of forsake. I want us to understand this. To forsake is to leave behind someone who you had a close relationship with at an earlier time. A husband who leaves his wife has forsaken his wife. A father who leaves his children has forsaken his children. A friend who leaves his committed friend has forsaken his friend. And we are so uncomfortable with this definition because it means that most of our society is made up of forsakers. 
well, I don't want to call that person over there a forsaker. That seems really harsh. No, guys, forsaking means leaving someone you were in commitment to. The reason we're uncomfortable with this is because we all want to be consumers in the church. We don't want to be called a forsaker if we leave because that church has better worship or that church has a program we like. So we've dumbed down this and we've stated that, oh, it's just what people do. Guys who are parents in here, if your kids come to you and say, the reason I want to do this, parents, is because it's just what my friends do. As parents, how would you respond to that? Favorably or not? And so as a pastor, when I hear people say, Hans, just get used to the fact that there's forsaking all over the church. It's what people do. I look at them and I go, no. Are we the people of God who reflect God or are we the people who don't? Because remember, our God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about that. Apply it. Don't tone it out just because you want to keep your options open for a better date. You know what I mean by that? See, that's the reality of what the people of Israel were supposed to be. In the lack of commitment, they were forsaking the Lord. And they were saying, God, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain of giving me fortune and fame and success and comfort, then I'm going to go over to these other gods, destiny and fortune. It sounds like contemporary Christianity to me. But this was not what the covenant of Yahweh was all about. Perhaps you guys remember this view of what's called a suzerain treaty. The way that treaties were developed between kings and their people back in the days of Israel is they would use a suzerain treaty, and it would go like this. It would start with a history of the relationship, and usually it would start with the king saying, I am the king of such and such a place. That's why Jesus said, I am that I am. In other words, there is no king but me. And who am I the king of? He says, I am the king of the whole world and specifically you as a people. The second thing would be obligations in the relationship. Each party has obligations to maintain the relationship. There would be provisions to read the suzerain treaty publicly on a regular basis to remember it. And then lastly, there would be blessings and cursings that came upon either forsaking the covenant or staying within it. And the whole of the Bible is written in this way, especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but also the New Testament. You read a book like Romans, first 11 chapters are who God is and what the theology behind him is, and verses, or chapters 12 through 16 is our obligations in relationship. Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, same thing. The rest of the book, obligations. This is how God views us. He's our king and we're his people. And he saves us by his grace, but by doing that, we enter into covenant commitment with him. And the true followers of Yahweh understood that they were not in a contractual, consumeristic relationship with Yahweh, figuring out how to manipulate his goodness and holding him in contempt when it didn't go their way. That's how we act, right? We, we go to church so that God will be favorable to us, so hopefully he'll give us a prosperous life. And then for some reason, if prosperity doesn't come, who are we angry with? God. You see, rather, they knew they were grateful citizens of a benevolent creator and savior and king. And citizenship within his kingdom required a response to him, a response to his kingdom, his people, and his law of love. And so the rest of this section 
And Isaiah 65 is directed to the you, those that had forsaken him. So every time he says you, he's talking to those that had forsaken. Take a look at verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, the ones that have forsaken him, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from his eyes. You see, this is extremely sad that there will be those not just outside the believing nation, but inside it as well that will repay God's grace with a rebellious forsaking of his covenant faithfulness. His forgiveness is there for the taking for anyone that wants it. He's offering committed relationship to anyone that wants it. But they are the people that won't receive it because they don't want to be committed to him. But for those who respond to God's faithfulness with faithfulness of their own, here's what we see. They enter into this. The gracious restoration of all creation and fullness of joy for God's children. And the reason I want you to understand that idea of covenant and forsaking is, guys, I don't want to be standing in heaven one day, Lord willing, by his grace, and look around and go, hey, where's Frank from, from Mission? I, I, yeah, I, swore that he, I swore that he was one of the people of God. I don't want to be looking around for one of you. Because I didn't adequately teach you what following Christ is. You see, I want you all to know the gracious restoration of all creation and fullness of joy as his children. Take a look at verse 17, and we're going to see the hope that awaits all of us who follow Christ as true worshipers. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things that shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, don't get worried here. There won't be death. That's a metaphor. And we'll talk about that in a second. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. 
Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. At the beginning of the Bible, we have this amazing phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The words in Hebrew are Hashemayim v'ha'eretz, up there and down here, the heavens and the earth. And to the Hebrew, it was basically God created all that and all this. It wasn't as specific as we like to turn it into in our scientific community that God created the heavens and the earth. And here he says the same thing, not as a statement of of particularity, but as a statement of wholeness. I recreate, but he starts with this. For behold, ki hineni, he says in Hebrew, which means, look! Everybody look at what he's doing. Look at the miraculous restoration that God is doing. God has restored all that was originally created And none of the sin that broke it will be remembered. This is nothing that man can accomplish. Not even the UN who loves to quote this section in verse 25. Man cannot accomplish this. It must be a miraculous work of God. It will be so restored that things that were commonplace in the day of Isaiah, death from childbirth, miscarriage, stillbirth, death at an early age, these will be foreign and unheard of in that future day. The typical activity of stealing land or squatting in someone else's property will no longer be there because everyone will be provided for. We won't bear children for calamity. The word in the Hebrew for calamity is terror. Parents who have kids today, how tired are you of watching the news and realizing that you are bearing children into a world of terror? That won't be there anymore. Peace will be restored to the point that animals will no longer act from a point of survival. My daughter will be very happy about that because she'll get to pet everything. Animals, humans, all of us, we will be restored to life as it was in the garden, provided by God and enjoying one another in the midst of his creation. And most importantly, verse 24, look at it there. It says, before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. It speaks of relationship with God like it was in the garden, that there is intimacy, that we won't go, God, are you there? Are you listening? But we will know in communion with him that he walks with us. How many look forward to this day? How many will say a hearty amen to the prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Amen. Your children wait for you with eager hearts, Lord. My children just had a birthday. Um, I, well, all three of them have birthdays in the fall, but John and Jaden just had a birthday on the 13th. And it is both the happiest day of uh, my life in a lot of ways, uh, besides knowing the Lord, marrying my wife. But it's also one of the saddest days, and every year I wrestle. Because on that day, I'm reminded of the fact that I stood in a hospital room watching my wife's life slowly slip away from her and being told by the doctors that they have to get the children out now or all three will die. And the trauma of that day comes back to me every October 13th. And every year my wife asks me if I'm okay because I'm not, well, you guys know me, I'm not the big like, yay, all the time guy, right? Uh, But even on that day, I'm not overly expressive because I'm sitting there fighting back the feelings of dread and worry about the fact that I almost lost my family.
But every year, it gets a little bit less. And I'm able to rejoice a little bit more and mourn a little bit less. And I look forward to that day where all of us are able to get rid of the mourning and sit in the rejoicing. And the Bible guarantees that will happen. No problem that comes against you, no sin that you have done or that has been done to you will be able to stand up to the Lord's grace in that day. That is the promise of a holy and loving God. And I look forward to that. We desire this world to be restored and to be part of it. And so the right question, if you're sitting here and you're a little bit convicted by the first part and you hope for the second part, is then, wait a minute, I need to make sure that I'm part of his offspring. Well, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the Lord show us the separation between the true and the false worshipers of God. And this is a good portion of the next chapter. The separation between the true and false worshipers of God. Remember that for many of the Israelites of Isaiah's day, the religious ritual of temple sacrifice and temple worship had become a way of manipulating God to earn his grace and favor. And the more religious they were, the the more they thought they could do as they wanted. In reality, they had so confused God's heart and his law that they thought they could determine God's will on their own and be the arbiter of truth by their spirit. And so they'd forsaken the covenant commitment of God that required living a life of worship in response to God's grace. So let's take a look at how Isaiah paints that in 66.1. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word? Or do you flip through it to find a verse that makes you feel happy? Do you tremble at God's word? Or do you flip through it to find a verse that makes you feel happy? He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. That's very picturesque. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. And he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These people, in other words, have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So in other words, those of you that are true offspring of Jesus, hear the word of the Lord. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. Animal sacrifices, as stated in the Levitical law, were not a means of manipulating God for their own purposes. It was a means of stating, I know I'm in covenant relationship with you, God, by your grace, you've entered into commitment with me, and I know I have broken one of my obligations, and so I'm doing this sacrifice to restore commitment and trust. It's my confession of sin and your granting of forgiveness. It wasn't a way to get into the relationship, it was a way to maintain relationship. It's kind of like when I do something stupid and I have to go and confess to my wife 
and maybe, you know, try and be extra nice to her, do the dishes, bring her flowers, something, right? I do the dishes anyway, but bring her flowers, right? It's my sacrifice to say, I confess that I'm wrong, and I know that you're right, and we're in covenant relationship, and so let's get back to building trust and faithfulness. And the bloodshed of that animal wasn't atoning for the sin in a way that would enter them into relationship, but it was stating, I know I'm in relationship already, please forgive me. And so verse 4 is clear, rather than a bunch of bloodshed of animal sacrifices, God desired first and foremost that they would listen and obey. This is what 1 Samuel 15, 22 says. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, I've been a coach for a long time, a pastor for a while, and a parent for even kind of about the same time, a little bit shorter. And here's what I see in coaching or in anything. All of you who are coaches can kind of help me on this. Do you love it when the parents go to the kids and go, hey, Johnny, uh, just so you know, you'll never be good. You kind of suck at this game that I just put you in. And don't ever try and meet anybody's demands because you're just not going to be able to do it. Is that a good parent? No. Then why do pastors stand up every Sunday and go, don't worry if you sin. It's okay. You're going to keep doing it anyway. There's no way you'll be able to obey. That's just works. Don't worry about it. It's the exact same spirit. Guys, you are sinners saved by grace. There is no way you will ever be holy like God. But that does not mean you cannot obey. What it does mean is that the more you walk in relationship with him, the easier it will be to obey because you will be driven and led by the Spirit. And you see, God's people are governed by a love of God, not religious practices. The reason I come to church on Sunday is because I love being here amidst God's people, knowing that God is present. It breaks my heart when people are like, I just need to stay home because I need to rest. This is my place of rest. This is where I rest. You know why? Because this is where I feel loved and I know God is present. Breaks my heart because that means that people view church and God's people as an obligation that's to be drug along as opposed to a place to be zealous to be. And so God's final word in this section to those that listen and obey, those that tremble at his word, is that from within their own people, Their supposed brothers will hate them because of their zeal for the covenant love and obedience towards Yahweh. They will hate them because false worshipers rejoice in compromising the word of God and toning it down and making it easier to handle. In the midst of doing what they think brings God glory, they actually were going to be put to shame. So because they did not tremble at his word, they will eventually tremble. Look at verse 6. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. I don't want to be around for that. Now, in the midst of this judgment, as we saw last week, there's actually a cause for rejoicing. Because God is bringing judgment upon those who are his enemies, the world can truly be restored. And so this next section speaks to that restoration through the metaphor of birth. Let's take a look at verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Ladies who've given birth, have any of you ever given birth without pain? Some of you are like, yeah, it took drugs. This is without drugs, okay? 
Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for you, all who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Delivery without pain draws our minds back before the curse of sin, when there was no pain in childbirth. And through this metaphorical birth, a new people will be born. But who is this mother that's talked about? We get our answer from the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of verses that when you read them in the New Testament, you're like, what is Paul talking about? What is the author of Hebrews talking about? Here's Galatians 4, 25 through 26. We covered it a few weeks ago. Paul says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. He's giving us a metaphor typology here. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What is this Jerusalem above he's talking about? It's talking about the spiritual people of God, the city of the new Jerusalem talked about in Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, as we've covered so many times in Isaiah, John is taken to view the picture of the new Jerusalem. And it says that the new Jerusalem was like a bride that was brought forth for the bridegroom. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. The church is the mother. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly. Okay, that word there is where we get the word church. Of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You can go read Revelation 21 that talks about the bride that is the new Jerusalem. This is Zion, as we have seen throughout Isaiah, a city that is the metaphor of God's people. And this new understanding of God's people, the church, is what led one of the earliest church fathers, a guy named Cyprian of Carthage, to say this, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. And you might say, oh, well, that's a Catholic Okay, good thing he's Catholic, we're Protestant, we don't believe this. Well, John Calvin put it this way, who is the head of the Reformation along with Martin Luther. He says, I shall start then with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons, not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith so that for those to whom he is father, the church may also be mother. And this was so not only under the law, but also after Christ's coming, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly Jerusalem. In our day and age of consumeristic church going, people say, I can be a Christian without the church. Tell that to John Calvin and to Cyprian and to Augustine and to Jesus who is drawing people into his church. The Lord always finishes what he has begun, and he will sovereignly complete the work that he has begun. And this is why Jesus said, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's bringing forth his offspring and protecting them in the midst. 
And to love Zion is to be a people governed by what she stands for, unity and covenant love between God and man, not just empty religious practices. To those that love Zion, God speaks of the peace and restoration he will bring them. That's where he starts in verse 12. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bowed upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and he shall show indignation against his enemies. In his judgment, he brings it against those who have fought against him and have not received mercy. Look at verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, follow one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination in mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. These were cultic practices that people did in order to manipulate God. Those who are in the midst of religion to manipulate God to their purposes will receive the wrath of an almighty God. And those that desire to forsake that and repent and seek him zealously, they will be his offspring forever. Now this day seems far off in the future, but as Isaiah finishes this book and this section, we realize that this gathering has already begun. You can write this down. The gathering of God's offspring has already begun. The gathering of God's offspring has already begun. In our culture that has been so pervasively overcome by the Left Behind series and the rapture mentality, and I believe in the rapture, okay? But so many people have decided to just live their lives until the rapture shows up or they die that they miss out on the fact that the work of God's separation and his judgment and his restoration has begun. It's been inaugurated, and it's, it's going, and it will come to fullness. And so in this next section, 18 through 24, the process of gathering all the tribes and tongues starts with an idea of Jesus' first coming and extends all the way to his second coming. Okay? And as you can see, by the end of the book here, we're almost done. Let's take a look at verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots, in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. Uh, if you have to go look up a dromedary, don't feel bad. I did too. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. 
For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain forever. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This process of gathering the nations with all tribes and tongues, where did it begin, guys? When did it start? Pentecost. The use of tongues to bring people towards Christ. And it began there, and it worked its way through to our own day, and it will continue forward. And the sign set among them, the sign set among the people with 2020 New Testament hindsight, we can say with surety that this sign is Jesus Christ. The coming king of Isaiah 6, God with us, Emmanuel of Isaiah 7, the sin-bearing servant of Isaiah 53 and the other servant song, the liberating and anointed conqueror of Isaiah 63, the sign is Jesus. The central sign of the Bible is that of Jesus Christ, that through his sacrifice on the cross, our debt has been forgiven, and he has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him and the Father God. And so Jesus calls people to accept this sacrifice, welcome him as Lord and Savior, follow him to become part of his new covenant family with God. And in the midst of this covenant family, we will make mistakes and fall, but we will also grow by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to become partners with him, to one another and to the world around us. And verse 18 and 19 show us how we are to bring those people into the covenant family. We are both to draw and to send. The Old Testament paradigm is to draw the world to the people of Israel with the temple at its center. But we also see that from those who are drawn, there will be what he calls survivors that are sent. And this is both the city of light that draws and the salt that is sprinkled that Jesus speaks of. Great commentator that I've quoted many times in Isaiah, J. Alec Motier, he says this, Together, this section constitutes the missionary obligation of the church to create a magnetic community that then goes to share a saving message. To be the people Christ calls us to be, we must have a magnetic community that draws, equips, and then sends back out to share a saving message. We must be a covenant people committed to Christ and to one another. If not, the sad alternative, the only alternative from being his covenant people is eternal death and destruction. So this book should draw our eyes as it has through the whole thing to the majesty of the king and his kingdom. It should give us a vision of who we serve and that he is our savior because he loves us. But it should also draw us to strengthen our resolve to live lives of obedience, to serve a king that is both lawgiver and judge. And in serving him, what is his greatest command? You guys know it. Love one another, which then draws the world to his kingdom. But how hard is it to get people in a church to commit to each other and love one another? how hard it is to do so. We need to be a people that take his message to the world around us and draw them into his community of faithful offspring. And so this morning, individually, I pray that we would be people that would take time to see 
if we are a people that reflect this list we went through earlier? Have we responded in covenant relationship to Christ and his grace and mercy? Or are we walking in religion that we engage in to manipulate God to fit our needs and our wants? Do we obey him when it suits us? And corporately, what I pray is that we would embark on this next season of this local body of Christ known as Mission Fellowship. That we would take all that this book has taught us to heart so that we can become that remnant that he speaks of, the remnant of faithful offspring that trembles at the word of God and rejoices and seeks his grace and love. Are we corporately this people? As we prepare our hearts to respond to what the Lord has taught us, let's strengthen our resolve to be both individuals and a church family that reflect the heart of the God that we serve, all portions of him, not just the ones we like. Let's begin by being his people that take seriously what we believe. Would you put down your Bibles and your notebooks and stand with me? We're going to go through the Apostles' Creed And we're going to state what we believe as a church. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.